Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, good morning. Thank you to all of you who are joining us online today. Uh, For those of you who don't know me yet, or maybe you haven't put a name to a face, or maybe it's just been so long since you've been on campus, you forget who I am, and if that's you, I totally understand grace upon you. My name is Lisa Owens, and I have the privilege of serving here as a member of our staff team. What gives me great joy to be able to say as well is that this past December, my husband Matthew and I celebrated our 20-year anniversary at Sunridge. It was 20 years ago in December of 2000 that Matthew and I first walked through the doors of Temecula Middle School on that Sunday morning service. I had a little baby bump under my shirt being pregnant with our first child, Jonah. And so, Sunridge, thank you for being our church family for 20 years now. Well, this morning we're continuing through our progression through the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning I'm going to start a little bit differently than we often start. I'm going to take us back before the Sermon on the Mount, back to about 110 before Christ, to a time when a man named Hillel was born in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. Now, Hillel was a Jew, a descendant of Benjamin on his father's side and David on his mother's side. And according to tradition, when Hillel was about 40 years old, he traveled to Jerusalem in order to study the Scripture and just immerse himself in Jewish law and theology And he subsequently went on to become the highest authority among the Pharisees, the head of the highest Hebrew school of law at the time, and the developer of the Mishnah and the Talmud, which were the primary sources for Jewish law and culture and theology at the time. So Hillel was really the spiritual head of Israel in his day. And so he definitely would have been on Jesus's radar screen by the time Jesus came along. And he remains to this day a key influence in modern day Judaism. And according to legend, Hillel was once asked to recite the entire Torah, the Hebrew Holy Scriptures, by a non-believer who offered to become a Jew if Hillel could do the entire thing while this prospective convert stood on one leg one leg. And the wise Hillel, this man who had just immersed himself in scripture for his entire life, who had just spent years upon years extrapolating upon it and analyzing it, who had scores of disciples who were attracted by his wisdom and knowledge of the intricacies of the divine, he simply responded, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary thereof. Go and learn it. Well, so now we'll jump forward a few decades in our story to the time when Jesus walked those same streets of Jerusalem as Hillel. Because do you know that Jesus did something very similar to Hillel in his Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to ask you to stand up today for today's scripture reading. Not only that, but I'm going to ask you to stand on one leg. Wherever you are out there in cyberspace, stand up and then get on one leg. 
are you, do you really have your balance? Because you're going to need your balance because today's scripture on the Sermon on the Mount is the time when Jesus gives us the sum total of all the law and the prophets, everything that the people of God had in terms of divine instruction and revelation up into this point. Do you have your balance? Are you ready? Okay, here goes. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 12. That's it. One line. One line, you guys, to sum up the entire law and the prophets. Okay, you can sit back down. Thanks for that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right into our scripture today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, let's jump into our scripture. Again, it's just one verse. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. First of all, have any of you ever heard this phrase before, this saying? Have you? Of course you have. It's been etched into your minds, like the Ten Commandments were etched in stone, probably from when you were really little. And what's it called? You remember? Of course, it's the golden rule. Of course it is. Well, not only does this rule of life go back way before Jesus said it here, we've already said, Hillel said a kind of a version of this, but scholars think it actually goes a lot further than that, back to about 1800 before Christ. And it has remained a fundamental moral guide throughout history, spanning time and geography and religion and philosophy, various Formulations of the golden rule can be found in in, uh, manuscripts from ancient Babylon and China and Egypt and India and Greece and Rome. It's it's seen in Buddhism and Hinduism, in Islam, in Taoism, Scientology, Wicca. Various formulations can be found in philosophical traditions like existentialism, humanism, Platonism, modern psychology, and countless others. This was a fun version of it that I found um, in a proverb from the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria. And that says, one going to take a pointed stick to pinch a baby bird should first try it on himself to feel how it hurts. It's funny, isn't it? There's even evidence that the golden rule exists among animals. This is a picture of a vampire bat. And what scientists have found is that when mother vampire bats suck blood, they don't swallow it right away. They store it in their throat sack and then they take it back to the nest. But the thing about vampire bats is that they share a communal nest, meaning that a lot of vampire bat mommies and babies share the same nest. And what scientists have found is when mother vampire bats go back to the nest, they don't just feed their own babies. They feed everybody's baby in the nest. Pretty cool, huh? When I heard that story, it made me laugh because I thought about the countless play dates that I've hosted at my house where I would just like line up the paper plates and it was like, dino nuggets for you, dino nuggets for you, and dino nuggets for you. But that's pretty wild, isn't it? That the, the golden rule even exists in the animal kingdom. My teacher friends, all of you guys out there, you know that there are countless lesson plans available online, places where colleagues have gone to share their resources and their great ideas with each other. And so I just did a little Google search on the golden rule. And of course, within seconds, hundreds 
of creative, engaging ways that teachers have come up with to impress upon their students the need for empathy, the need to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. They just immediately popped up because we know that as long as there are ways for kids to be cruel to each other, there will be a need to remind them of the golden rule. There are just countless children's books and fables and fairy tales about this, but we know it's not just for kids and it's not just in religious context. Some of the most influential world leaders have invoked the golden rule in their call for how we can live together as members of the same planet. Did you know that there's actually an international golden rule day? It comes up every year in April And it's a day that was sponsored by the UN and over 700 organizations in 165 countries, a day when all the citizens of the planet are called to to uh, re-inspire each other and re-engage with the idea that we need every day to be living according to the golden rule. And here at home, this principle has been invoked by our top leaders as a standard for how we can live and govern as fellow Americans. President Abraham Lincoln often invoked a golden rule evaluation of slavery, calling upon proponents of slavery to first try it on themselves to see how they liked it. President Harry Truman admonished Americans after World War II to really utilize the golden rule in order to move forward into a more prosperous and peaceful future, both at home and abroad. President John Kennedy, often invoked the golden rule in speeches, um, in his anti-segregation speeches, saying, and this is a quote, that the heart of the question is whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. President Gerald Ford called on Americans to restore the golden rule to the political process in order to bind up those internal wounds left from Watergate. President Ronald Reagan thought that the golden rule, among other things, would help politicians balance the federal budget. And President Obama often cited the golden rule as his guiding principle for his policies, particularly those involving human rights, both at home and abroad. And just a few weeks ago, President Joe Biden referred to the golden rule in his inauguration speech, saying, and this is a quote, he's asked us to end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal, by being willing to stand in the other person's shoes, showing a little tolerance and humility. So this principle for life that Jesus gives us here in the Sermon on the Mount, this way that we ought to live our lives in relationship with one another, this is something that we have all just been steeped in since birth, regardless of our background in Christianity, we have been taught and reminded over and over and over again, and not just us, practically everybody on earth in one form or another. I have a friend here at Sunridge who many of you know because he's an elder and he's actually also the head of schools right now at Linfield Christian School. But before all that, Mark Horton and his wife, Christy, were members of the First Life group that we joined here at Sunridge. When I had that Jonah baby bump, they had just had Carly, their first baby. And so Mark and I go way back and he teases me like a brother because of that. And so I thought that today maybe I could just tease him a little bit because Mark has this thing that he does uh, when we're catching up. We don't get to see each other as much as we would like. And so we often have to catch up. And he's a good question asker. 
And I inevitably find myself telling him stories about something in my life that I'm trying to do, some kind of improvement that I'm trying to make, um, effort that I'm trying to make that's, it's just inevitably not going as well as I want it to. And this actually happens a lot in my life because I'm a hopeless Enneagram one. So I'm constantly like trying to improve myself and it's not going as well as I wish it were. But what Mark does inevitably is he'll just listen quietly for a while and then he'll get a little smirk on his face and then he'll start kind of chuckling to me. And he says, so how's that working for you? And I picture Jesus in our homes with us, watching us interact as couples, as kids and parents and siblings, community members, neighbors, church members, fellow Americans, nations, citizens trying to share this same planet together. And I see him looking at us with all of our lesson plans and our motherly lectures and our anti-bullying curriculum and our our sermons and our speeches and our children's books and our fables and our fairy tales and our committees and our charters and our international days of recognition, all telling us to try harder and be better at the golden rule. That the key is us just trying harder, trying with all our strength in some way or another to treat others the way that we wanna be treated. And I see Jesus looking at us with love in his eyes. And he says, so how's all that working for you? Because family, I don't have to tell you, it's not working that well for us. We are no better off than we've ever been at doing this well, at treating people the way that they wanna be treated, the way that we wanna be treated, despite the incredible amount of emphasis of teaching, of global and personal recognition on the golden rule. All this talking, And being intentional about how we treat others isn't working for us. And at the risk of just cementing my place as the Debbie Downer of Sunridge Community Church, for those of us, myself included, who have placed our hopes in the younger generation, those younger kids like my three teenagers who I'm just, I'm, They've just been smothered with the value of empathy and that need for putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Those kids like my kids who I'm constantly telling, you're the hope for change. (laughs) Do better than us at this. We need you to somehow learn how to do better than us at this. I have to tell you that I think our hopes are really misplaced because when I hear the stories that they're bringing home from high school and university, both private Christian and public secular schools, the stories that they're bringing home about how students are treating each other both in person and online, they don't inspire a lot of hope. And they actually match what national statistics and surveys show us, which is that today's students are substantially less empathetic than boomers and Gen Xers were in the 70s in the 80s and the 90s. All this talking about the golden rule, talking about why and how to treat others the way that we wanna be treated. Jesus looks at us and asks, how's that working for you? And so the last thing that I would wanna do today, a day that we have to spend on this verse, Matthew 7, 12, is to spend time telling you something that you have heard a million times before and something that we've established isn't essentially working for us. It's changing us the way that we need to be treated. And thankfully, when we dig into our verse for today, 
we see that it was never actually meant to be that way anyway. See, the problem with the golden rule as it is widely used and taught today is that it amputates the beginning and the end of the verse and only keeps the middle. But when we keep the whole verse together, when we keep all the words and wisdom that Jesus has for us in this verse, we actually take a hold of the key to doing what the verse tells us to do because Jesus does actually expect us to do what he's telling us to do here. We are not off the hook. And so let's start with the the part of the verse at the end that's usually amputated, the tail, so to speak. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now we can remember from a sermon that Britt preached a while back on Matthew 5, 17, how the original hearers of that day would have heard that phrase, the law and the prophets. Remember when Britt preached on Jesus saying that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we can remember that that would have meant all of those culturally and divinely prescribed rules for living, everything that the prophets of Israel had to say to Israel as words from God up into that point, the whole law of Moses, roughly 600 or so laws, and then all of the prophecy that came after that. And so here's why it's critical that we not amputate that tail of this verse, the way that the rest of the world so often does. Because the whole reason that Jesus came as the savior of the world was precisely because the people of God were absolutely hopeless in obeying the law and the prophets. Jesus came as the Messiah, the redeemer of Israel, because Israel could not obey the law and the prophets. They didn't have it in themselves, despite the fact that the penalty for disobedience was death. And really a really horrifying death too. They still couldn't. They failed over and over and over again. And so Jesus came. He was the solution. He was the way. And that's why that tale is such good news to us, because Jesus knows He knows we don't have this in us. And I know that I joked earlier about Mark Horton and his, how's that working for you? Line that applies so well to so many things that I'm trying to do in my life and in our collective inability to live this verse out. And yet, if I'm honest, there is nothing in my life that brings me more pain than my inability to love people well. And since God, and since scripture tells me that the way that I show my love for God is the way that I show my love for people, it automatically doubles down on that failure. My consistent failure to treat the people in my life, very often the people that I claim to love the most, with the honor and the respect and the tenderness and the consideration that they deserve, makes me spiral to the lowest places that I can go. I have to tell you that I, I almost canceled doing this message so many times. I almost picked up the phone and called Britt and was like, I cannot be the one to teach on this verse because it's a terrible thing to have to teach on something that you know you're so bad at. I felt like within these past few weeks, I was just consistently had my sin before my face. From the second I woke up in the morning until the second that I went to bed at night, It was just moment after moment after moment, all day long recognition of how my thoughts are always about myself. I'm I'm so often self-consumed about what do I want next? What do I want next? It was really alarming to to see that and actually incredibly discouraging. And yet, 
God in his kindness to me over these last few weeks also kept bringing before me the words of my brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, and what he says in Romans chapter 7, picking up at verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I hear the anguish in those words, the anguish in being so stuck in yourself, the self so full of sin. And I think, I get you, Paul. Because of course I delight in God. I delight delight in his ways and in his word. I became a Christian and I'm still a Christian because of the way and the truth and the life that I find in Christ alone. And yet make no mistake, I am stuck in a body of death and never more so than when it comes to this matter of loving people well, of putting other people in front of myself. And, And I know that I'm not alone in that because we're human right? We're biological creatures and our natural instinct will always be towards self-preservation. And so I want to go back to our vampire bat friends, those precious vampire bat mommies and their ability to, to do the golden rule and how they were willing to feed everyone else's kids because scientists did further studies. And so I want to finish that story for you. Because what scientists did is that they, they took a mother vampire bat from the nest And they pumped up her throat sac, not with blood, but with air. And then they put her back in the nest to see what would happen. And it was really interesting because when all those other vampire bat mommies (laughs) saw her and saw her not feeding their babies, it was as if they said, oh, really? You're not going to feed our babies, huh? Well, we'll see how you like it. Because from then on, they refused to feed her babies. So much for the golden rule, right? Turns out it was just tit for tat all along. And it is that same, that same biological drive for survival at work, that same drive of the flesh, that instinct to take care of me and mine that is at work in our members as well. That is that other law that Paul is referring to that is keeping us prisoners and waging war against us this wretched body of death that we're subject to. There's no denying it. And that's why my only hope, our only hope is what Paul says next in his Romans section, that passage that we were at in Romans chapter seven. Do you remember when he said, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, look at how he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul knew that there was nothing in himself capable of doing any of this. And I know there's nothing in me capable of doing any of this. And Jesus knew it too. And praise God, he never expected us to be able to do to others what we would have them do to us. Okay, but if that's the case, what does it mean that it seems very clear in our verse for today, Matthew 7, 12, that Jesus is very directly and very clearly telling us to do something that he knows we're incapable of doing, knows that the only person actually capable of doing it 
is the one saying the words, Christ himself. And what's interesting is when we look back through the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like we very often see Jesus telling his followers something about how they're going to be living in the kingdom that contradicts what they're humanly capable of. But we know that it's not as if Jesus said, here, here's all the things that you're going to be doing as part of my kingdom, but good luck with that because you're completely incapable and I'm out of here. No, that's not what he did. We know and we remember what he did instead. The gospel writer John, who was a close friend of Jesus, who spent so much time with him and and spent a long time in his gospel describing Jesus' last supper with his disciples, a time when he laid out more clearly than ever before who he was, what he had come to do, what would happen next, and what they were called to do. He tells us more about this. Picking up in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The Spirit lives with us, in us. That same word that is translated there as advocate, we know can also be translated as helper. Jesus not leaving us as orphans, not leaving us to try to do any of this on our own, but promising to be in us, loving us. He says, you, me, the Father, the Spirit, living together in a relationship of love that enables you to live in love. And of course, that's the gospel writer John in those verses, assuring us of Jesus's presence and power. But listen to how Matthew, our Sermon on the Mount's scribe, ends his gospel in chapter 28. He says, this is Jesus talking, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What does God want most to leave us with in Matthew's gospel, this gospel where we find our Sermon on the Mount? He wants to leave us with a reminder that his spirit is here with us always in us. And so that brings us back to the dangers of amputation. We've already been over the danger of amputating the tail of this verse, but there's another part of this verse that is commonly amputated around the discussion around the golden rule that is equally dangerous to missing the fullness of what Jesus said here. And that's the head. Take a look. It's that little word, so, at the very beginning. It's a Greek word, un, so, or therefore. And we know that anytime we see a word like that in any language, we know it's linking what is about to come with what came previous. And so we can look to what came previous. And for that, we need to go back to what Britt preached on last week. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you hear the availability in that, the readiness of our Father to lavish on us everything that we need, everything that we want and are so desperate for? And of course, we know that that can refer to any good gift that the Father gives us. What's interesting, though, is that the gospel writer Luke, in his description of this teaching from Jesus, actually gives us a more precise designation for what that gift is. Check it out. It's in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so there, finally, hidden in that little Greek un, that head that we so often amputate to end up with just the traditional golden rule, we find the key to how in the world we're actually going to live out this verse. It is the Holy Spirit in us, that same spirit that Jesus promised us, him in us, him with us, that is the key to living out the golden rule. It's the only way. I've always loved how God talked about this through his prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I think that passage resonates so much with me and speaks so much hope and life to me because I know my heart of stone. It is that same heart of stone that leads me to agree with the Apostle Paul and what he says about the wretched woman that I am. It is that same heart of stone that makes me incapable of treating others and loving others and putting others in front of myself, the way that I am called to. Do you feel that too, you guys? For me, it's almost like a physical sensation sometimes, this, this hard-heartedness toward people. It's like a clenching in me. It's like a solid tight inside of me that will not be moved. It's like everything in me is saying, no, I will have my way on this. I am right. You are wrong. You can't treat me like that. You're not listening to me. You're being unkind, unfair. I'll show you how bad that hurts. And yet, and yet here is the promise, Christ in me, removing from me that heart of stone, that heart that is so clenched up tight around everything that I think I need and want and deserve and am entitled to and putting in me instead a heart of flesh, soft, tender, yielding, and fragile, yes, that is assumed, capable of being hurt and broken and cut open. And yet somehow God tells us that that is better for us. And so in that little Greek un, that, that sower therefore that gets amputated too often, we recognize that it is all the work of the Holy Spirit that makes living the entire Sermon on the Mount possible living the golden rule possible. But we also recognize something in that little Greek word, un, about what came before. We recognize that there is also work for us to do. And what is our work? 
Well, take a look. It's in that verse that we were just in, in Matthew chapter 7. Ask, seek, knock. We ask, he gives. We seek, he reveals himself. We knock and he opens the door, and not just a little, but with abundance. We open ourselves to the Spirit of Christ in us, doing the work of transformation, and he does it. Jesus is clear here about what our work is. Rather than telling us to try harder at something that he knows we're incapable of, Jesus invites us to go straight to the source of all the presence and the power we need to be like him. And family, in order to be citizens of the kingdom that Jesus is describing here on the Sermon on the Mount, citizens whose outer behavior and how we love reflects the inner reality of our transformed selves, that new man, that new woman with the new heart and the new spirit put in there by the king himself, we must do the work. We must be asking and seeking and knocking and crying out for God to manifest himself in us, manifest his spirit in us. And all that sounds all great with all that Christian-y language, doesn't it? And we would all nod our heads in agreement and be like, yeah, Lisa, for sure, for sure, we should do that. But what does that really like look like for you? What does that look like in your life for you to be asking and seeking and knocking? How do you ask God for his presence and his power to will and to act according to his good purpose? How do you invite the Holy Spirit in? to transform you in a way that makes it possible for you to participate in what God is doing in his kingdom here on earth? Those are real questions. And if I had time right now, I would just be quiet and pause and let you just reflect and even jot down a few notes on your note sheet if we had time, because those are real important questions. And if God's work is the transformation of our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, enabling us to be like him, then our work is putting ourselves in a position to receive the gift of Christ's spirit lavished on us by the Father. And that sounds really passive, doesn't it? And and God is the one who does the heavy lifting of change. But nonetheless, we are people who have a ridiculously hard time doing our part. When we look to the practices of Jesus, those holy habits and rhythms that he maintained in order to hear from the Father and stay in his presence, we see Jesus doing such things as meditating on scripture and seeking out times of solitude and silence. We see Jesus praying, living simply and generously. We see him fasting. We see him in committed fellowships times of fellowship with other believers, all practices that we might do well to imitate as we seek to intentionally put ourselves in a position to receive the Spirit. And I know some of those practices sound daunting, don't they? They sound daunting to me, but wouldn't they sound less so if we were doing them together side by side, shoulder to shoulder as church family? Well, that's something that you're going to be hearing about more and more here at Sunridge. And today, I'm inviting you into those opportunities with us. I'm hoping that you will join us in those opportunities when they come up. Those times that we are asking and seeking and knocking, knocking for the Spirit, receiving the gift of the Spirit together. 
Because family, the natural outcome, the fruit of that spirit in us, well, Paul tells us a few of those things in Galatians chapter five, doesn't he? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know what that sounds like? sounds like to me? That sounds like a list of the ways that people want to be treated. It certainly is a list of the way that I want to be treated. I want to be treated with selfless love, a love that's looking not to its own interest, but to the interest of others. I want to be treated with a joyful heart, with the desire to make peace between us. I want to be treated with patience, understanding, and taking into account the fact that I am still a work in progress, people. I want to be treated with kindness, thoughtful consideration of my wants and my needs, with generosity, giving me more grace than I deserve, even when I'm tired and crabby and cranky and selfish and unfair. And I want to be treated with faithfulness, not giving up on me when I do things to let people down. And of course, with self-control, acting with intentionality toward me in a way that is best for everybody and not just reacting. That's how I want to be treated. I'm guessing it's how you want to be treated because it's kind of universally how people want to be treated. And that is the fruit of the Spirit in us. And it is what the world is desperate for from us as followers of Christ. And so we must make the effort to receive the gift of that Spirit. The spirit of a servant, humbly not looking to our own interest, but to the interest of others, valuing others over ourselves. Which others? All others. In which things? In everything. And here I want to say something that's probably going to sound ridiculously obvious, but I have genuine concern we're in danger of losing sight of as people who seek to follow Christ. The spirit of Christ in us will be like Christ. It will be like the Christ we know of from Scripture. And I say that I'm concerned about that because I see a lot of us, myself very much included, by the way, claiming to follow Christ, claiming to be filled and led by His Spirit. But then I see us behaving like mommy vampire bats. I see us limiting who we treat with kindness and compassion and service to those in our tribe. In other words, to those who we know will look after us and our people, our bad babies, so to speak. I see us circling the wagons in regard to who we agree to treat with the generous and self-giving and sacrificial love of Christ, the love that went to the cross for his enemies, enemies that included me and you, by the way, to those who we know will do something for us, to those who are like us, And of course, that's terrible to admit. We'd never want to admit that. I don't want to admit that about myself. We're the good people, right? We're the Christians. And yet, I think it's really fair for us to take a look, to see if we're operating according to our flesh and according to that biological drive and instinct towards self-preservation, that need to take care of and ensure the survival of me and mine that is fundamentally opposed to the Spirit of Christ the spirit of the one who in this very sermon we've been dwelling in all of these weeks reminds us that citizens of the kingdom do not limit who they care and look out for, who they look for ways to treat well, to actively bless 
Citizens of the kingdom filled with the spirit of the king do the exact opposite. They do what Jesus did. What Jesus did when he washed the feet of two of the men, two of his closest friends on the very night that they went on to abandon and betray and deny him in the worst way possible. He knew that that was going to happen. He knew they were going to do that. And he loved them sacrificially nonetheless. It's the way that we see God the Father lavishing us with love, going after people with good things, with generous love. And so I think it's fair for us to evaluate ourselves this week, a week that we find ourselves on this verse, Matthew 7, 12. How am I limiting my love? Is there a way that I've quietly or even maybe loudly on social media deemed a person or a group of people unworthy of myself giving love? Am I participating in something in the name of Christ that does not resemble the Christ that we know from scripture? How can I discern the spirit within me based on what is coming out of me? Anything that does not look like the Christ that we know from scripture may not be of Christ. And that is our opportunity to ask and seek and knock for the Father to empty us of the flesh, empty us of this wretched body of death and fill us with Christ himself, the Christ who enables us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. I'm gonna finish in, in prayer. I'm gonna close this in prayer. And in this time, I'd like, you to inv- I'd like to invite you to pray with your palms up in an expression of receiving a physical expression that you are waiting and expecting for the Father to fill you to all fullness with the Spirit of Christ, the one who makes the doing possible. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer that I would love to invite you to incorporate into your practice of prayer this week. In those times of struggle, when you find yourself struggling to love and treat people the way that you are called to, because I assure you those times are going to come fast and furious. In fact, Maybe the second that you turn off this video will be your first opportunity to pray this prayer. It's a prayer that's been, um, it's an ancient prayer used throughout the centuries after Christ um, by many different expressions of Christianity and Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant traditions. Our brothers and sisters have prayed this prayer along with us. And it's perfect in those times of struggle because it's only three words. Come, Holy Spirit. Palms open heart and mind open, ready to receive. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Our Father who delights to give us everything we need and what we most need, you. We confess together that it is not in us to do this, Lord. Do unto others as we'd have done to us, but it is in you. And Father, you promise to give us your spirit, fill us and make us like Christ from the inside out. And so today we say, come Holy Spirit. We are asking, seeking, and knocking. Come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.